there, there's been varying degrees of success amongst the platforms that have been created in the market. And so the ones that I would place on the spectrum of more successful relative to others, like they're in, t- in good position to exit. The ones that I would place on the you know further end of the spectrum in terms of having a success post-transaction, they're probably going to have to hold on to the assets quite a bit longer. My, my actual suspicion is that you'll start to see those organizations get acquired by the ones with by the ones that do have successful exits with their with their next partner. Abe, it's uh, really nice to see you again. Welcome back to the Scope Forward show. Likewise, thank you for having me, Praveen. It's good to good to be back again. I want to introduce you to you know our audience. So Abe Emboge is currently a vice president with Westco Partners, an investment banking firm that specializes in working with healthcare entrepreneurs and has unique experience advising physician practices and more specifically GI practices through private equity and or strategic M&A transactions. So Abe, this is going to be such a useful conversation for uh, people who are listening, because I'm going to start with the R word, you know, which is recession. So are we in recession? Is this supposed to be recession? I'd have to check the exact definition. I think the specific definition of recession is, is uh, two consecutive quarters with uh, shrinking or, or negative GDP growth. So I don't know if we've, we've met the technical definition for a recession yet, but it definitely feels like um, economic activity is declining maybe a little bit. I know everyone's sort of waiting on, on some updated in, inflation numbers and, and data. But I think, you know, as a result of some of the kind of monetary and fiscal policies of, of, of the last year or so to, to pump a lot of money into the economy, you, you certainly had inflation pickup, which has caused a lot of prices to increase gas, grocery store, um, you know, used goods, all, all sorts of items have kind of increased in price. And so, it's caused you know consumers to pull back a little bit on on spending and definitely slowed down economic activity. And then there's been obviously a lot of talk of, of rate increases, which has also hampered a bit of activity as well, which has a direct impact on sort of private equity and, and their investments into uh, various various companies and organizations. But I don't know if we've hit the technical definition of recession yet, but activity has definitely slowed down from an economic standpoint. I think from a deal standpoint just kind of seeing transactions on a, on a day-to-day basis. There's still quite a bit of activity in, in the market. Private equity firms are still deploying a, a lot of capital, partially because, you know, you, you look back at prior economic slowdowns or, or prior true recessions you know, you, in the same period, span of time. I was actually looking at this a little bit earlier today. From 2011 to now, the amount of private equity capital that's available from deployment has increased from about 1.1 trillion to about 2.9 trillion dollars across the industry. So, as you think about, sure that there may be a little bit of slowdown, rates may be increasing, which makes it more expensive to deploy capital and finance deals. There's also so much more dry powder, as we call it, or, or capital available for investment in the industry that it's um, you're, you're still going to see quite a bit of activity because those funds have to find ways to put that money to work. Okay, so you you packed a lot of information in that response. So I want to break that down a little bit. So so let's start with the basics. So we don't know whether we are in recession or not, but it smells like one. Uh, Technically, we don't know yet. 
but if, if you were to explain to an eight-year-old what exactly is the problem with recession environment how would you say it like so costs are going up inflation is high that means that everything is more expensive there is is there but then you're also saying there is more capital available but i would think that there's less money available uh, but i want to hear hear from you how yeah. how would you uh, ex- explain it in very simple terms yeah so i think in in terms of like what a recession is it's a general again decrease in, in economic output or gdp meaning the, the value of goods and services in the economy is decreasing and so when i say like in how inflation is impacting that as you know normal day everyday people like ourselves go to the grocery store or go to fill your car at the, at the you know at the gas pump like the price of those things are increasing and so you know i'm i'm in southern california so you know gas is easily well over six dollars a gallon at many gas stations here and so you know you go to the gas station and that causes you to think twice about going to you know that nice dinner you wanted to go to or that electric procedure in relative to healthcare that you may have wanted to have it on a micro level like these things don't seem to be correlated but there is a general correlation with the level of inflation and in, in, uh, consumer price increases and the level of consumer spending that goes into the economy so circling back to what that it means for an eight-year-old i guess people are spending less money um than they have otherwise in in the past you know several years due to due to the overall um the state of the economy so that that's that's what everyone's sort of dealing with and thinking through right now okay but just looking back on the covid period when the pandemic began people already were spending less money right like so that that's like a recession you would think that but it, you also had a lot of government subsidi- subsidization with you know that which has led in some some ways to the great resignation a lot of kind of unemployment funding was out there there was a lot of subsidies that were increasing the level of funding those programs were providing for the first time in history you had you know direct deposits into the the, the bank accounts of americans to actually kind of subsidize you know the lifestyle and while some of that was was meant to stave off economic hardship like you look at you know for example I'm doing a lot of work in plastic surgery right now plastic surgery businesses saw some of the greatest increases that they've seen that they've seen historically in terms of their revenue like throughout covid why was that cuz a lot of people got stimulus checks and you know used that for elective services so i think that now we're getting to a point where there's a bit of a like a, if you will like a hangover of of all of the money that's sort of been pumped into the economy through that that period and you know on one hand i always i always kind of joke about this with um with, with people but you know we we pumped a lot of money trillions of dollars into the economy and then we woke up one day and we're confused how how prices increased and and inflation picked up and that's like that's like textbook you know outcome of of what you should expect when when you're when you're you know printing money and putting it into the economy. So that's that's sort of how we got here. So I think while there and it, you know common sense would have said that there was a slowdown during COVID um that that really wasn't the case because there was so much money being put into people's pockets, you know, and and I think now that like economic reality is setting in maybe a year and a half, 18 months later, um you're seeing that slowdown happen a, a bit later. Very well explained. So is the government 
printing more money now? They've slowed down a little bit. And that's that's kind of part of government policy in terms of the central bank in, in terms of looking at raising interest rates. Like by default, them them raising interest rates is is them buying back money that's essentially in the economy through through open market operations and, and government programs. So there's they haven't been printing as much lately, but they, you know, we obviously did just just print quite a bit and um, over the last couple of years. Okay. Uh, so now moving on to private equity, you know, which is at the crux of this interview, this conversation. So you said that the amount of dry powder or the amount of capital to invest uh, has increased substantially uh, in, in the last few years, almost maybe over a trillion dollars, you said, uh, even, even more. It's more than a trillion dollars. Yeah. So where is this money coming from? You know, it's, it's typically institutional investors. So, you know, pension funds, endowment funds, ultra high net worth individuals, accredited investors, um, like state pension plans, like um, California state pension plan is one, one of the largest investors, CalPERS. So very large endowment funds and investors that have, you know, tens of hundreds of millions of dollars to put to work at any given time. And I think what's what's caused that that such a great deal of, of inflow of capital into private equity has been the the outsized returns they've been able to generate relative to some of some of the you know the alternatives of these groups, which are you know, mutual funds and public markets, and in some cases hedge funds. And so you know the success that private private equity has had, not just in healthcare, but kind of across the board, um, has caused those investors, institutional investors, to allocate more and more of their portfolios into kind of these, these private market investments. And so I, I think, like I mentioned, as I was looking today, I want to say from 2011 to, to, to 2021, um, there's, it's increased from about $1.1 trillion in active like uh, capital that was available for deployment to about $2.9 trillion. So quite a bit of increase in capital. Yeah, so that's about $1.8 trillion increase in capital. So, yeah, that, that's, that's a lot of money. So again, I just want to break that down as well. So the institutional investors, or let's call them limited partners as they're called, uh, these are endowment funds from universities such as, you know, my uh, University of Michigan or Harvard or wherever. And uh, so they're giving money. Uh, then there are insurance companies, they're giving money. Then there are ultra high net worth individuals. They made a lot of money in the market. So they've, they've given money. Uh, and so a lot of dry powder has been supplied to private equity. And now this money is, this capital is already there. The agreements between the limited partners and the PE companies or firms are already there uh, and they're executed. So they've committed to uh, investing that money and giving back uh, returns. So this money has to be, the, so PE has an agenda now to complete the deployment or whatever agenda that they're in uh, right now. Now, my question, I want to begin with one question from the limited partners point of view. So now that every, everybody's going to pull back uh, in, in the current environment, either you know the, the generation of um, market returns will slow down. It possibly will slow down. We don't know how long, uh, but it's, I'm assuming, you know, it, based on whatever I'm finding out, this slowdown is here for a while. This correction is here for a while. 
So if that happens, then my understanding would be that they will not supply more money into the market. Is that is that a correct understanding or no? I can see a scenario where because you, you've got to you've got to separate call it the market from what I would call like the, the private market. So you got public market and private market. Right? Public market doing horrible. Right? They, you know, I saw a stat last month that it was the longest weekly decline of the stock market since the the tech bubble had burst in 2000. So, and I think the degree of um, decline was, was greater in 08 and 09, but it, you know, the, the weekly, the extent and the, the timeline of the decline was actually longer in the last few weeks than it had been in, in historical sell, sell downs in the stock market. And so the, the general stock market is driven, you know, by fear, greed, you know, um, you know, emotion that, that's all part of the investment. And to some extent, the private markets are, are too, but the, these, these investors are thinking about investments over a much longer time horizon, right? Five, seven years for, you know, call it the average private equity investment. And I think, you know, if I'm sitting there as, as the, you know, head of an endowment or a pension fund, and we're entering a world of potential low returns in the public markets, you know, on one hand, you know, you could make the argument that you're going to see more capital allocated to alternative investment strategies, of which private equity is one of them, um, to find creative ways to get that return out of the out of the market. Um, even though maybe the return is, is albeit it's fair, maybe the return could be a bit less over the coming you know five years than it, than it has been over the last ten to fifteen. But if it's still exceeding their their uh, if you think of it like their competition. The competition being public markets and S&P 500, you still may see a greater degree of capital allocation into private equity. And we were actually talking about this as a team uh, earlier this week. We were curious to see some of the recent fundraising numbers. They haven't come out yet, but one article I, I read today was was about how, um, like, how every year for the last several years has been a record fundraising year for private equity. And when is that going to slow down a little bit? And all indications uh, point to kind of continuing, but. Um, I think in the backdrop of, you know, as an investor, if your alternatives are getting poor, you're you're going to allocate more capital to private equity. So I could see them continue to raise a fair amount, fair amount of money. So let's talk about that a little bit more. By getting to the level of the P firm itself, like so, let's say somebody who is heading a private equity firm, what would they be thinking, you know, right now? Because let's let's consider what must be happening to typical portfolio let's set aside healthcare for the moment but in general in the industry most employers so layoffs are on the horizon if not already and uh, in the in the tech space there is a hiring freeze across you know across the board it seems to be all the big tech firms they hired excessively assuming the whole world will go digital during the covid period which is true from a long-term standpoint, but now they have excess people and they don't know what to do with them. So either there are layoffs like, you know, from Netflix laid off people, uh, there are other firms that are either laying off or holding back on, you know, on the hiring. So if they were part of the PE portfolio and some of them would be, so, so then your portfolio is not hiring much anymore so there is lesser economic activity in your portfolio companies which means that the exit that you were expecting within a three to seven or a five to seven year horizon 
may or may not happen at the level that you're expecting. You may have a return, you may not find a buyer. I mean, a whole variety of possibilities. Like, so it, what would a PE firm be worried about, you know, at the current moment? And then please also add in the angle of lenders and bankers, uh, because they have a huge role to play in the investment activity when they're giving debt. So you touched on a good point. Like with a lot of companies that, that have, have had sell-off or um, layoffs recently, and a lot of the companies that had the, the largest sell-offs in the stock market, there's been this huge shift in the market generally. This is across the public market and private market when I, when I say this. From really, you know, you think of like the high-flying growth stocks, technology is, which usually is, is a big component of that, to more value-oriented, cash play-driven, profitability-type business models. And the businesses that are susceptible to layoffs at this point are the are the companies tend to be technology companies that have really overhired, you know, probably weren't profitable to begin with or had marginal profitability, and so they couldn't really sustain their workforce and their valuations. And a lot of a lot of cases were just driven on kind of continued revenue growth. And now that you're seeing that slow for several companies, you use Netflix as an example. Um, that is that is like causing these organizations to have to rethink their cost structures and profiles and causing their investors to rethink it. It's really the same within the private market as well. There are certain segments of the healthcare economy. I would not put GI in that this category because those deals tend to be more profitability driven. But there are segments that were historically trading on revenue multiples or or pretty 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 high valuations that have certainly come down because the market is not as favorable to, to just to just growth at any at any cost at, at this point in time. So I think as, as you sit at the head of a portfolio, you know, and, and looking at the investments that you've made with, within that portfolio, whether in healthcare or otherwise, you're trying to understand, you know, what what are the cost structures of my investments? How are how will ultimately the market evaluate these investments upon exit? Um, I think some of these in, uh, businesses that you know, may have uh, historically been valued upon a, you know, a revenue multiple or a growth multiple are now trying to think through how they pivot themselves towards profitability and the, I would say the urgency to show profitability from investors or outside parties is is greater than it, than it had been over perhaps the last couple of years. And so as you think about that as, as a portfolio operator, that may include, you know, layoffs or redefining the strategy or spinning off unprofitable or uh, segments of the business or businesses that uh, maybe haven't developed in the, in the way that, that you would have liked. But I think for companies that are still, you know, and this is why like healthcare services tends to be a really great area for, for private equity investment. Businesses that are stable, have stable cash flows, you know, profit, you know, profitable and continuing to grow, you know, do can can thrive in, in in this sort of environment, especially as you look at you know something like a physician practice, which is a bit more resistant to kind of overall price changes, right? You know, a, a GI practice is somewhat impact, impacted by inflation, but but not really, right? You know, payer rates don't necessarily change with the price of gas or the you know the consumer price index. So you're a little um you're a little resistant to some of those those outside changes. Which is why it's still a pretty good area to see invest that you're continuing to see investment appetite for those portfolio companies to exit for other buyers is, is definitely strong. You know, you had a, a large deal last year with with Gas for Health. 
being exited by Audax Group and trading to Omer's, another very large private equity firm. There's, you know, several of these other platforms I'm, I'm certain are going to explore exits uh, in the near future. My guess, GI Alliance will, will likely see a, a secondary transaction in the in the next year or so, as well as some of the others are going to start to explore it. So again, just circling back, if you're in that position of you have a strong company with strong cash flows, you know, you don't have to change how you're thinking about the investment a whole lot as it relates to healthcare. If you're in an area of healthcare where it's more of a growth-oriented play and you're thinking about how do you exit into the current market, then you've got to think a little bit more about what that strategy looks like in, in your time horizon because I, I think it is changing a lot for, for, for a lot of people. What are the bankers thinking? Well, I guess to, to, to back up, so from, from a lender perspective, you know, rates are increasing. So that impacts things in a couple ways. One, from a banker standpoint, you know, you know that if like I, we tend to work on the sell side, so we're working with the, the organizations that are you know, bringing on private equity capital or, or seeking to be acquired or, or, or some type of investment partner. So you know that when rates increase, that, that historically and potentially can have an impact on valuations, right? And so as you know, private equity firm is going through their model and building that out and they're making their assumptions on their entry investment and, and what the cost of that capital is going to be from a financing standpoint, you know, the, the plug in that model that is the interest rate on their debt gets a bit more expensive. And so as that filters through, it ultimately will, you know, come back that, you know, they can technically pay a little bit less for their investment. Again, though, going back to the comment around how much capital has been raised, we've seen such competition for these as a banker, which is, this is a good thing for us. We've seen such competition for our clients in these transaction processes from various private equity firms, as well as, you know, larger healthcare strategic organizations that we haven't seen that impact of, uh, of that financing actually impact valuations at really at all, or as much as, as much as expected. In fact, we're pretty consistently exceeding kind of valuation expectations that we set at the outset of the process through, through the, through the transaction process. So we haven't seen that yet. It's definitely a possibility. I will say groups are definitely and this is getting back to lenders, you know, whereas during COVID, you know, there were a lot of businesses that were impacted negatively throughout the course of COVID, whether that was, you know, and, and Phil have in some cases like trouble staffing, like, a, like if it's a staffing type of organization, staffing uh, caregivers and, and um, providers in, in some instances and nurses in, in, in a lot of instances has become more challenging. So that was definitely a struggle for some of those, those organizations. You were able to make adjustments to the finance or, or any, really any business that saw like an, a downturn as a result of COVID, you were able to ex explain a lot of that stuff away uh, with investors and lenders. And the honest truth is some of that's come back and some of it hasn't. So there's certain things that, you know, people had bought off on that didn't come to fruition, both lenders and investors. Um, again, as, as a banker, our job is to, you know, ensure that that you know ensure we get our client, clients credit for for those things. But the reality is, some some of those things, some of those adjustments that people make to EBITDA or revenue or whatever it may be, have come to fruition. Some of them haven't. And the the key thing that you focus on in the process is like showing a trend back to normalization. I think that you know now in the, in the current environment, people are there's not as much appetite for those types of adjustments. So you, whereas maybe 12 to 18 months ago, you 
you could get away with some of those things. Right now, you, you really can. And so people are, are pretty heavily diligencing um, like those types of adjustments to the quality of earnings. So I, I guess to, to answer your question from a lender perspective, it's definitely getting a bit more stringent in terms of underwriting requirements. If Gastro Health were to exit now uh, or in the coming months, uh, and let's say we're in peak recession, would they have, would they get uh, the same valuation that they got? Uh, would, first of all, would they find the buyer? Uh, and second of all, would they get a similar multiple as they did last year? Like this, this current environment wouldn't impact their ability to exit if it was six months later. Um, and I don't think it's going to be the case for some of these large organizations that are exploring exits. The reason being, again, it's a it's a it's a fast growing but profitable organization, and they they've kind of established themselves with, within the market. So there's like there's very strong economic fundamentals behind those investments. That's different than you know like a technology investment that you know could grow a lot and has shown and demonstrated you know the opportunity to grow quite a bit. But um, I think like a different, they're in kind of a different category where there still would be a, a fair amount of appetite. You're seeing a kind of a cross position practice management. There's been several, several pretty high profile exits over the last, you know, call it six months, um, not just in GI, but in other specialties. And, and so I think you're, you're, you're still seeing that appetite. And then even, um, you know, I can say there's still a lot of appetite for, for private equity firms to find platforms within you know, various areas of physician practice management. And we can talk specifically about where GI is at. I think it's, it's, it's tougher to find a platform investment outside of one of the, one of the large groups that's, that's already been created as a platform as a second bite of the apple. Um, but you know, I'm doing a lot of work in the cardiology space right now, and there's insane valuations are being paid for these organizations because of the, the market opportunity exists irrespective of the, the kind of outside market even higher than they were at, at kind of the, the peak of, of some of the GI activity. So you definitely have a lot of appetite from investors to, to find assets in these spaces. But to your, to your question, I don't think it would impact, let's say Gastrol was transacting right now, I don't think they would, have, they would uh, be being impacted in their transaction. So you're saying even the valuation would be the same? Valuation would be the same, yep. Okay. So now talking about second bites of some of the other platforms, that got their start in 2018 and after. So one would expect, you know, just adding five years to that. Uh, so one would expect that they would be exiting next year. So we would see second bites next year. So which means that the groundwork for that should have begun already. That would be my take. What's your take? Uh, is, is that going to change or based on what you just said, I'm assuming you would say that, no, like, you know, they'll find the exit and they'll find at the valuation that they would normally find. The groundwork has definitely been laid. Like I suspect with a pretty high degree of confidence, some of them are exploring exits at the current time. However, I, you know, I think it's, it's fair to say like not all there, there's been varying degrees of success amongst the platforms that have been created in the market. And so the ones that I would place on the spectrum of more successful relative to others, like they're in, t in good position to exit. The ones that I would place on the, you know, further end of the spectrum in terms of having a success post-transaction, they're probably going to have to hold on to the assets quite a bit longer. My, my actual suspicion is that you'll start to see those organizations get acquired by the ones with, by the ones that do have successful exits with their, with their next partner. But 
the challenge right now in the GI space, I don't want to say it's a challenge, it's, it's, but it's, you know, the, there's these platforms, namely like Gastro Health and GI Alliance and One GI have had so much success in, in such a, a short amount of time in, in partnering with, with so many groups. I'd seen a, a report the other day that 10% of the 14,000 gastroenterologists in the country are, are part of these the private equity-backed organizations. And, and um, But the, these groups have had such success that there's really not entryway for a new platform to come into the space. So you're pretty set. Like if, if a new GI group wanted to go and find a platform investment, it would be pretty hard. At, like at the current state of the market. So, but what you do have is this kind of captive pool of investors or, or buyers that now have intense competition for assets or groups that come available in the market. And so, and even for relatively smaller uh, transaction opportunities. So it's not impossible for a you know sub 10 doctor group to be trading at a double digit multiple because there's such intense competition to partner with those groups for these larger groups to have a successful outcome within their transaction. So, but I think that the groups that are, and I don't have to say who they are, like people know who the most, who the more successful groups are, people know who the less successful groups are. I, I think the, you know, those groups will, will have an easy time exiting and, and the other groups will probably spend a bit more time in the market um, finding their way. Ultimately, I, I suspect a lot of the the slower growing groups will, will probably be acquired by some of the other larger ones. And that's like not unprecedented across physician practice management. Like for example, one of the largest OBGYN providers is a company called Unified Women's Healthcare. Unified Women's Healthcare was a portfolio company of Aries Management, wasn't is uh, from 2013 until very late in 2020, and they did a recapitalization with another private equity firm called Atlas Partners. With Atlas Partners, they actually went and bought the second or second or third largest OBGYN platform, a company called Women's Health USA, and brought them into their organization. So it's not unprecedented for you to start to see some of these these larger platforms combine and, and grow with one another. Yeah, very interesting. So now, if you look over the shoulders of some other specialties that are ahead in the PE game. How has it played out? You know, once these large platforms started acquiring more and started exiting, there's been a second bite or maybe even a third bite in some. So when those transactions have happened, have they gone uh, multi-specialty? Have they gone across the board? Or what is the norm? Or, or is there so much room for growth even within specialties? Uh, that are the transactions, you know, just making these companies larger and larger uh, within a single specialty. What have you observed? It varies a bit by specialty. I would say for most of the specialties over the course of the last 10 years, they've all gone through second, third transactions, and it's all been still kind of single specialty with a couple of exceptions. But the where sort of the area, the playbook came from for multi-site investment in physician practices was really the model of dental practice management. And, you know, many of the dental spaces is, is so fragmented and there's so much room for growth that even the largest dental, dental organizations out there in the market, their number one way of, of still growing today is by partnering with solo practices and solo practitioners. That 
is different than what you'll find in like the GI market. There's just, it's not, it's, it's very fragmented, but it's not as fragmented as called dental space. So I don't think it'll go on forever like it is in dental. Now, what you saw with some of the outsource, maybe hospital-based service type physician practice management businesses, you know, those grew like, and I'm talking like anesthesia, radiology, emergency medicine, those did ultimately end up combining and you had the creation of, of the Envision Healthcares, which I know ultimately, you know, had some trouble as well as uh, team healthcare, but those ultimately became, you know, I think when, when team was taken private, it was $18 billion transaction when, when Envision was taken private, it was about 11 or $10 billion transaction. So those became extremely large organizations. And then as you think about, you know, the ophthalmology and just going along the timeline here, like pain management, ophthalmology, dermatology, most of those businesses have gone to their second bites of the apple. None of them have, have started to like change specialties quite a bit. Although I would say on the ophthalmology side, you've started to see some of those kind of blend on the more optical side, which is, which is kind of interesting. So continuing to get into the consumer, play the consumer angle on, on that piece. And you, you've continued to see that grow. And then on the women's health side, interestingly, circling back to my, like the unified example I gave, that's an example where you're starting to see a crossing of specialties in a way. So like unified shortly after they had bought Women's Health USA, they also acquired uh, CCRM, which was one of the largest uh, fertility private equity backed organizations. It was a little bit of I think it was a, a 500 or $700 million transaction. So it's, it's fairly large. And so that's an example of them. It's sort of, a, you could view fertility as like an ancillary service of, of women, women's health relative to, you know, pure OBGYN services. But that's an example of them kind of crossing into a different specialty. So I don't know where it ends with, with GI, circling back to GI. I don't know where it ends specifically. You know, there's been some talk of integration amongst like urology platforms and moving into into other areas, but I don't think that within GI you'll start to see mixing of specialties just yet. Where is GI right now in terms of you said ten percent of the gastroenterologists are under a private equity platform, or so? If you break the whole market down, uh, I remember having this conversation with you several months ago now. But if if you think of it as a pyramid. At that time, I remember you saying that, you know, most of the big groups are gone. There are some still. So are, are they exploring transactions? Have they decided not to do it? Uh, what about the middle? And what about the huge base of this pyramid that, uh, you know, all the different smaller practices have they decided? I mean, those who decided to do a transaction have done. Are, are people still in the middle or have they decided, hey, like, you know, this is not for me? I may be overgeneralizing, but generally, if you're uh, overgeneralizing, but generally, if you're, if you're a large group, call it north of 15 doctors, like you've even north of 10, you had the opportunity to tr transact, whether it was a banker called you, you know, a, pri a private equity firm called you directly or one of the platforms in the market. You've likely like tried to at least figure out and get educated on, on whether or not a deal could make sense for your group. And I think the groups that are, are still independent, like have decided that's, you know, it's just not the direction they want to go. So that's like completely fine. Um, and those groups will still have the opportunity to transact. I think 
the challenge some of those groups may have is that the impetus to transact for some of these practices can't be like that they want an exit strategy for the, you know, for the senior partnership or the, or the leaders within that group, because then it won't set them up for like a great transaction when they ultimately go through it. I think if, if like if those, if these groups change their minds and want to explore transactions, it, it really needs to be based in like some sort of change in thinking that, you know, it makes sense to become part of a large organization and, and, and join, you know, and, and grow from an equity standpoint. That's what I would call the, the top end of the market, top, top to middle. I would say that the base of the pyramid for them, the market's actually in a really exciting time because these are the groups that, you know, didn't have a lot of options before there was this ecosystem of private equity firms that created the called sub five doctor practices, right? Where there aren't private equity firms calling them to invest in them as a platform. And, and so for those shareholders like this, they've now had the opportunity to create liquidity from the practices that didn't exist for them for the last you know five years while all these other large practices were doing deals. And, and so I think it's an exciting time in the market from that standpoint, because that is you know obviously creating a lot of opportunity for those gastroenterologists and it's also creating a lot of opportunity for the private equity platforms that are invested in the space, right? Because that's where they're that's where they actually create your return. You don't you don't create your return by going and buying, you know, 15, 20 largest groups in the country. You create your return with what you can do after that. And that and because you, you can expand within all of those markets by partnering with with smaller groups. So I think it's the base slash lower lower middle of that pyramid is is where you're seeing the most activity at the moment. Earlier in the conversation, Abe, you talked about during the pandemic, transactions happened, people, the investors gave you know, transactions a little bit slack, and you said some worked out and some did not. It did not play out as they thought it would. Uh, you know, I, I think we're talking about deferred income and the growth activity will pick up, and, that, and you said you know, for some it did not happen. I want to talk about that you know, for a moment. So what happens in, you know, in that case, what are the risks uh, that we are dealing with? I know you're an investment banker and, you know, you would say like, hey, like, you know, this, everything is great. But I just want you to step away from that for a moment and, uh, you know, help me understand what are the risks that uh, we are dealing with? Risks from the PE standpoint, risks from the portfolio standpoint, from the platform standpoint, from the uh, you know, people who have joined the platform standpoint, and ultimately, if you're a, a small practice or a mid, medium practice, that's right in the middle. What what are the risks that we are dealing with? What could go wrong? The risk ultimately is that the you know the the earnings or the EBITDA that you're basing the transaction on, right? If if you know the deal is based on an adjusted EBITDA, just pick a number of two million. And you pay, and you pay, you as a buyer paid a 10 times multiple on that for 20 million. And then, you know, you fast forward, there were adjustments in there, you know, maybe for code productivity or, you know, positions were out or whatever, whatever it might have been. And, you know, fast forward at 12 months after the deal, EBITDA is 1.5 instead of, you know, two. You know, what did you buy, right? You bought something that was worth 15 for, for 20. But like, that's the, ultimate risk. And then the, um, the downstream imp- impact of that is obviously it has a negative impact on the equity value of everyone associated with the organization. 
what I would say is that's actually like hasn't been within GI specifically and, and really most physician practices that hasn't been the case. There has been pretty strong normalization of, of trends post post COVID. That comment I, I had made was, was somewhat related to what we've seen in, in like some of the post-acute space, like home care providers and, and home health providers, where some of these businesses um, have had trouble staffing kind of providers and nurses into like care settings. And that market has been a bit more challenging and it has not come back in the same way that uh, some, some of the other areas of healthcare have. But with, within, within the physician space, you can look at the financials of most physician practices and they're over and above what they were pre-COVID. But going back to that, the, the risk is that, you know, and, and there were there are likely some deals that, that happened during COVID or shortly after where the earnings didn't materialize. I think we actually talked about this quite a bit in our in our last in our last discussion, though. The investors, being the private equity firms, they did do a pretty good job of protecting themselves against, you know, that profitability or those that earnings not coming back. So that's what everyone was dealing with at that point in time. Like, how do we structure this deal in a manner that gets the practice full value? Go back to our, our, our uh, $20 million example. Like, you may get your 20 million. It may take, you know, 10 up front, five and five over the next two years while we see volumes come back. Those types of structures are gone, nor do sellers want to accept them. But, you know, uh, I think it, it, it's also shifted towards just being more thoughtful around adjustments that could be to the made to the financials. And but to answer your question, the, the downstream impact of that is impacting the equity valuation. If it's a platform, you know, obviously that, that could potentially get you in issues with, with your lenders, which could put you on the path towards bankruptcy. I don't I don't think anyone's like had that issue at, at this point, but that is, that's a potential risk. So everyone's being very thoughtful on that. Are we going to see any announcements in gastroenterology in the coming months? New platforms, any major announcements, uh, you know, that you know? I don't know of it. I don't think of any new platforms that are being created. I know we, knock on wood, should be announcing a deal um, in the next couple of months uh, with, with a, a group that's partnering with an existing platform. So there continues to be, you know, groups that are, are um, groups are, that are doing transactions. If I had a crystal ball, um, I don't know anything for certain, but I, I would expect by the end of the year, you'll probably see another one of these very large, you know, one of the established platforms exit to a larger investor. On that note, Abe, fantastic insight into what's happening in the PE world and uh, specific to GI. Very, very insightful. I, I learned a lot from this conversation and thank you for you know, being so open and candid and clear about uh, you know about everything i always appreciate that once again i thoroughly end up enjoying and learning a lot uh, every time i chat with you so thank you thank you for you know, coming today and sharing your perspective thank you very much Praveen, for having me i always enjoy speaking with you and and i always enjoy hearing your perspective on on these things as well you have a unique one and i i always enjoy that you're doing these types of activities podcasts and getting this education to the stakeholders in these industries because i think it's important and uh you do a good job of it, but thank you for having me.